0: Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would respond in that way um, that was echoed in that song. Lord, when we hear the truth of the incarnation, that the eternal Son of God clothed himself in flesh, became a man so that he could live a righteous life in our place, so that he could die paying for our sins in our place and so that he could rise again as a man in order to bring us as men and women along with him into heaven if we would trust in him. And we thank you that even now he intercedes for us, that he is God and he is still man interceding for us, his people. Lord, that should drive us to our knees in awe and gratitude for what our Lord has Done The lengths that he has gone to, to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from his wrath. Lord, help us to take advantage of this Christmas season, to take it as an opportunity to think more deeply, more carefully about the incarnation, about what our Lord has done. So that we might worship him uh, more fully, um, that we might give him more glory, the glory that is due his name, we pray. And so that we would follow his example as he humbled himself, how much more should we as mere creatures humble ourselves uh, to serve one another in love um, as an overflow of what our Lord has done for us. May you accomplish that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to, we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians, and I thought it would be a good opportunity for us um, this December, to think a little more deeply, a little more carefully, maybe than we have in the past, about the incarnation. And we're going to kind of jump all over the scriptures this morning to see what the Word of God has to tell us about it. But when you, if you study church history at all, you know that in the earliest creeds of the church, such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both of them make mention of the virgin birth of Christ. They make mention of the incarnation. And they mention it as a defining article of the Christian faith. Those creeds confess that an essential part of what it means to be a Christian is to believe in the truth of the incarnation. And we need to ask, is that true? Is that true? A non-negotiable? Is that an essential? Because today the virgin birth of Christ is something that is denied by many people who nevertheless profess to be Christians. The incarnation is seen as nothing more than a myth, something that you don't really need to believe. But is that true? Can we treat the doctrine of the incarnation as something that we can choose to take or leave when it comes to our faith? If we don't believe it, can we still consider ourselves to be a Christian? Well, I hope to show you this morning that the incarnation is critical. It's a truth that we ought to hold very dear because if the incarnation is not true, if the virgin birth did not happen, then the gospel falls apart. It comes apart at the seams. The gospel stands or falls on the truth of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus Christ. So we're going to look into this truth a little bit more. First of all, what do I mean when I say incarnation? What is the incarnation? Well, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. And look at verse 1. We're told there that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, who is this Word? Drop down to verse 14 of chapter 1. It says, and the Word, this Word who John has already told us was with God, this Word who was God, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's very clear that that is speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the Word. The Word who in the very beginning was with God and who was God. And verse 14 states the incarnation. The Word became flesh. That is the incarnation. The Word incarnation means in the flesh. incarnate. In the flesh, God came in the flesh. That's what we mean when we say incarnation. God put on flesh. Now, how did this happen? The means of the incarnation, how did this take place? How did the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, how did he take on flesh? Well, for that, let's go to Luke chapter 1, which we read for our call to worship. It's here in chapter 1 that we find that our Savior, the Son of God, became flesh. He became incarnate by means of the virgin conception, the virgin birth. I want to read that passage again for us in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And here we go. The angel Gabriel explains it for us. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So here we see in this passage, we see Gabriel, an angel sent from God, visit a woman named Mary. And he told this woman, who was a sinner like the rest of us, that she was graciously chosen by God to bear the incarnate Son of God In her womb. And naturally, she had questions. How would this happen since she was a virgin? She wanted to know. Well, verse 35, Gabriel tells her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, the Holy Spirit of God would come upon Mary. The power of God would overshadow her. That word for come upon, the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary. That same word is used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus is instructing the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them to enable them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. This word come upon is also used in The Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible that New Testament people had, called the Septuagint. And in Judges chapter 14, verse 6, when it says there that the Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he ripped apart the lion, that's that same word, came upon. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary to enable her to conceive a child, even though she was a virgin. The word for overshadow, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that word is the same word used, again, in the Septuagint in Exodus 40, verse 35, where we're told that the Shekinah glory of God, that pillar of cloud, settled upon the tabernacle. It overshadowed the tabernacle to the point that Moses could not enter because the glory of God was overshadowing that tabernacle. It's also used in each of the gospel accounts of the transfiguration. Remember Peter, James, and John, they're on the mount with Jesus, and as he is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah, they see the splendor of Christ's glory, and they're enveloped in a cloud. The glory of God is overshadowing them. It's that same word. And this sense of the Holy Spirit, the power of God overshadowing Mary. It kind of evokes images of the creation. Remember, the Holy Spirit was brooding over the waters of the unformed earth as he was involved in creation. That tells us that this incarnation event was a miracle. It was the glory of God involved and bringing about this act of creation. The Holy Spirit formed a human nature in Mary's womb, a human nature to which the eternal Son of God united himself in order to be carried by Mary for nine months, to be born and laid in a manger, to grow up, increasing in wisdom and stature, to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom to Israel, to be scourged, to be hung on a cross in order to redeem a lost humanity and to rise from the dead in a glorious resurrection. The Son of God, being the uncreated God, He is eternal. He has always existed together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Our God is a triune God, right? He's one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son of God is eternal. But in that moment of the incarnation, the Son of God took upon himself the humanity which he united himself to, and that humanity was what was created in the womb of Mary. Now, just like Moses was unable to enter the tabernacle with the glory of God overshadowing it, so we cannot expect to enter right into what actually happened in the womb of Mary we cannot peer very far into this miracle so we have to be very careful to not say more about it than what the scriptures say because if we try to go beyond what the scriptures say we will end up teaching something that might lead believers astray or lost souls astray they might have an idea of Jesus that's not true They might believe something about him that makes him a savior who is incapable of saving us. We need to know what the scriptures say about this truth. And we need to preach that truth to ourselves. So, the virgin conception, that was the means of the incarnation. Now, what was the result of the incarnation? When the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and this child was conceived within Mary's womb, what did we get in this child? What is, who is this child? Well, what we can say about this miracle, what the scriptures allow us to say, is that apart from the contribution of Joseph or the contribution of any other man, the Holy Spirit caused a child to be conceived in Mary's womb. And this child would be called the Son of Man and he would be called the Son of God. Gabriel tells us quite clearly that this would be the result of the Holy Spirit's action upon Mary. If you're still in Luke 1, look at verse 31. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Well, human beings are conceived. Human beings are born in a womb and are birthed into the world. Human beings receive human names, the name of Jesus. The angel is clearly communicating that this will be a real child, a human being that you will carry. But this child will also be truly God. Look at verse 32. The angel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Just as the Son of a man is a man The Son of God is God. Look at verse 35. The holy child shall be called the Son of God. So which is it? Is this child a man or is he God? Well, he's both. The scriptures clearly proclaim that this child is both God and man. And that shouldn't surprise us too much because this was foretold quite clearly in the Old Testament. Turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. This is a messianic prophecy. This verse is telling us something about the Messiah, the one who would come and redeem Israel, would redeem Gentiles as well, all who would believe in him. Verse 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. That speaks to the Messiah's humanity, doesn't it? He will be a child. He will be a son, a son that is born into the world. But then the verse goes on to say, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he's man and he's God. Now turn to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Another messianic prophecy. The prophet here tells us in verse 6, For a child will be born to us. Again, that speaks of his humanity. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles that you cannot apply to a mere man. This Messiah is also God, we are told here in this verse. And then lastly, let's look at the prophet Micah. If you can find it, I know we don't turn there all too often. Micah chapter 5 you'll pass Amos, Obadiah, Jonah and then you'll get to Micah if you run into Nahum you went too far Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says but as for you Bethlehem Bethlehem was a town in Judah as for you Bethlehem Ephrathah too little to be among the clans of Judah from you one will go forth. Now, usually it's people who go forth from a town. This is, again, speaking of the Messiah's humanity. He will go forth from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That speaks of his deity. So he's both from Bethlehem and he's from days of eternity. So he is man and he is God. That's what the scriptures testify to us. So again, let's think about this moment of the virgin conception. That moment when the Holy Spirit was overshadowing Mary and he enabled her to conceive a child in her womb. What was happening at that moment, that she conceived a child. Well, that was the moment when the eternal Son of God stepped into his creation by uniting a human nature to himself. The Son of God has always been God. But when the Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive a child in her womb, what was happening was that the Son of God was taking flesh upon himself in Mary's womb, in order to become a man. And theologians have a term for this reality about the incarnate Christ. They say it's a hypostatic union. Hypostatic means something like personal. What happened, what resulted from the incarnation was a personal union. It refers to the fact that in Jesus Christ, we find two natures divine and human, united in one person, Jesus Christ. The one person, Jesus, has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus is God and he is a man, yet he is not two persons. He's one person, one Jesus. As the person of the Son of God, Jesus has always existed, and when he took on humanity in the incarnation, he didn't become a different person than who he's been from all eternity. He was still the Son of God after the fact. In the incarnation, he did not take on another personality in addition to who he's always been. Jesus having two natures does not mean that he was two different persons. Jesus did not have a split personality. He didn't go through life talking to himself like one person talking to another person. It's not as though there was the man Jesus and there was the God Jesus sharing a body together and having to figure out who would do what when, debating with one another. When you read through the Gospels, you never find the Scriptures referring to a Jesus A and a Jesus B. It's only Jesus. There's only ever one person. Yet... You do see scriptures referring to actions that this one Jesus does, but it's actions that reveal his human nature, like when he gets tired, like when he dies, like when he eats and fellowships with his disciples, but also actions that reveal he has a divine nature, like when he walks on water or he creates bread or when he restores a limb or raises people from the dead. The same person is doing both of these things. And yet he's one person. But it's clear he has two natures. Now why is this important to understand? Does it really matter if you understand this or not? Well, the second part of the message I'm hoping will drive it home, how important it is. And we need to ask the question, why is this important? Why is the incarnation important? important? Well, I want to ask you four what-if questions that show you why it's important. Because if our Savior is not who the Bible says he is, if he's some other kind of Savior, then our salvation hope goes away entirely. So let's run through a few scenarios and see what the scriptures say about whether or not that is a viable option for our salvation. So, first, let's ask this. What if Jesus was only a man? What if Jesus only had a human nature? Would it really matter all that much if the virgin birth did not happen and Jesus was born just like everyone else? Well, if Jesus was born just like everyone else, then he would be what? He'd be a sinner just like everyone else. He'd be subject to Adam's fall and to sin. Just like everyone else. And a sinner cannot redeem other sinners because the sinner has his own sins that need to be atoned for. Now, maybe the virgin birth did happen. But what if, having happened, the child was still only a man? Yeah, a real special, amazing man, but still just a man. We don't know what happened. Some weird thing happened way back then. A virgin conceived a child, but is still just a man. What if that was the case? Well, he still would not be able to redeem us. If a mere man redeemed us, who would gain the glory for our redemption? Would it be God, or would it be that man? It'd be that man. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 41. And verse 14. Isaiah 41, 14. This is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 14, he says, Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The Redeemer of Israel is God, the Lord. No one else. Turn over to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. God alone can be a Savior to his people. Verse 12, It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? There's no man who comes along, no matter how miraculous his birth might have been, if he's a mere man He still cannot deliver people out of the just hands of God. Only God can do that. Lastly, turn to Psalm 49. Psalm 49, verse 7. The psalmist. Writes, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Why not? For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. That passage tells us that there is not a man who is only a man who ever lived who can redeem even one other person let alone redeem a whole people for God. A mere man cannot do that. Why? Because the soul is costly. It takes a whole lot more to redeem a soul than just one man, even if he was innocent, laying down his life. Our Redeemer needs to be God, not a mere man, not only a man. So, if Jesus was only a man, then we are without hope. Let's ask a second what if question. What if Jesus was only God? That yes, Jesus came, but he only had a divine nature. What if it's just in Jesus? What if it's just God appearing to us as a man, but he didn't really have a human body, didn't have a human soul, didn't possess a human mind or a human will? Could that save us? There's a problem. Because according to the Bible, the penalty of sin is what? Death. So the only way we can be forgiven is if someone dies in our place, paying that penalty for us. What does Hebrews 9.22 say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? No forgiveness. As the just judge, God requires that a penalty be paid for the sins committed by sinful man against him. And the problem is that God, as God, cannot die on behalf of men because God is immortal. He's eternal and unchanging. If God died, he would cease to be God because God cannot die. It would be to undo who he is as the eternal God. God cannot go against who he is the great i am cannot cease to be so humanity's in a bit of a pickle because someone with only a human nature cannot redeem us and someone with only a divine nature cannot redeem us well let's try something else what if jesus is two persons remember we'd been saying at the beginning the scriptures reveal he's one person but what if he was two persons It's very important that we say that Jesus is one person, both truly God and truly man at the same time, but he's one person. If Jesus was two persons, say, the Son of God being one person and the man Jesus being another person, so that you have God and man kind of sharing a body together, working together to accomplish our redemption. Well, that still would not solve our problem, our sin problem, because we run into the same problem we ran into with the previous two questions. Because even though in this scenario you have the man Jesus being possessed by the Son of God, the man Jesus laying down his life is still just a what? A man. Just like a demon-possessed man is still just a man. Such a man's sacrifice would not be effective in saving us from our sins. Well, let's try one, one last scenario. What if Jesus was a hybrid of God and man? That wouldn't work either. It's important that we say that the one person, Jesus, is truly God, and he is truly man. He has two natures that are inseparably united together in him but those two natures remain unmixed and unchanged all that god is jesus is that's why it wasn't blasphemy when thomas seeing his resurrected lord said my lord and my god jesus is truly fully god worthy of all worship And it's also why Paul could say what he said in 1 Timothy 2.5 when he said there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He said the man, Christ Jesus. How can both things be true? I don't know, but they are true. That's what the Bible says. It's true. And it's important that we cling to that truth. When the incarnation happened, the Son of God did not become some kind of hybrid being, part God, part man. That would make him less than God and more than a man. What historically happened at the incarnation is totally different from what we read about in the mythological stories of the Greeks. For example, the myth about Hercules. You see Zeus, the Greek god, he comes and he impersonates a woman's husband. And Zeus and this woman have relations, and the product of their coming together is the child Hercules. And Hercules was a demigod possessing superhuman strength. You could say that Hercules was a god-man hybrid. That's not at all what we find in the incarnation. First of all, in Luke 1, There was nothing sexual going on when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. It was a creative miracle, not a sexual act. Secondly, the child Jesus conceived as a result of that miracle was not a hybrid being. The mythological Hercules was a hybrid. He was more than a man, but less than a God. That's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is fully man and he's fully God. Thirdly, the mythological union between Zeus and Hercules' mother resulted in a new person who'd never existed before, Hercules. But the historical event of the incarnation is not like that because the person born to Mary was not a new person. He was the same person who had always existed in the Godhead as the Son of God. And after the incarnation, he was still the Son of God. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 30. I want to show you how this is true. He's the same person before and after the incarnation. John chapter 1. Listen to what John the Baptist says in verse 30. Remember, John the Baptist was related to Jesus. He was older than Jesus. In verse 30, he says, speaking of Jesus, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man. Notice he says, a man who has a higher rank than I. Why? For he existed before me. John's older than Jesus. He's speaking of a man who existed before him. How can he say that? He can say that because it's the same person. He's speaking about the Son of God. He's still the Son of God after the incarnation that he was before. That's how John can say he existed before me. Uh, Jesus says this, very much the same thing in John chapter 8, verse 58. And this really gets the Jews riled up when he says this. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is speaking about himself. The incarnate Christ says about himself, Before Abraham was born, I am. He's the same person. It's still the Son of God before the incarnation and after The Son of God is speaking. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the same person after being born to Mary that he was before being conceived in her womb. What was new was that he now possessed a human nature in addition to his eternal divine nature but he was still the same Son of God. So, Jesus is not a mixture. He's not a hybrid of divinity and humanity. If he were, he would be unable to save us because he would not be truly man, could not be a substitute for us, and he would not be truly God, something less than God, unable to redeem a whole people. And we've we've seen that in order to save us, He has to be truly man and truly God at the same time. That's a tall order for a a Savior. That's the kind of Savior we need in order to save us. So what did God do? God the Son became a man so that as a man he could die on behalf of men. At the very same time, the Son of God in becoming a man, did not cease to be God, so that as the infinitely valuable and almighty God, he could be the Savior of an entire people. This fact that the one person Jesus is truly God and truly man is the reason why Paul could say what he said to the elders of the Ephesian church. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 and verse 28. He says something quite odd if the incarnation is not true. But if the incarnation is true, it makes perfect sense. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul, in addressing these Ephesian elders, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. How can God purchase us with his blood when God is a spirit and does not have blood? Well, because of the incarnation. Jesus, as man, shed his blood. And Jesus, as God, purchased us by that blood. That's the only reason we can truthfully sing that refrain in Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? Have you ever been struck by what we sing in the refrain of that hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Should Die For Me? The only reason we can say that is because our Jesus is incarnate. He's God and man. That's why we can sing that. Do you see how fitting a Savior Jesus is for us? Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The false God of Islam, Allah, he cannot save you because he did not become a man to die in your place. Neither, neither did the pantheon of false gods in the Hindu religion. Neither the Pope, nor Mary, nor the saints, nor your own efforts to become holy can save you because mere men cannot save other men. Following the teachings of Buddha or Confucius cannot save you because they don't deal with our sin against a holy God. The Jesus of the Mormons, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, cannot save you because the Jesus that they proclaim is a Jesus who's less than God. That's not the Jesus the Bible proclaims. The Bible proclaims that Jesus is God and he is man, our one Savior. As God, Jesus is mighty to save. Because of that, there is no sin, there is no amount of sin that Jesus cannot forgive you of and save you from. His sacrifice as God is of infinite value because of who he is. There is no murderer, there's no liar, there's no homosexual, there's no drunkard, there's no drug user, there's no thief, no adulterer, no child molester, no coveter, no foul mouth, no prideful person that Jesus is unable to save and transform into a new creature because he is God. As a man, Jesus is our perfect substitute. Jesus lived his life as a man, and he lived out a life of perfect, sinless righteousness. And he did it in the place of his people, so that if we put our faith in him, the righteous life that he lived as a man, God takes that and credits it to our account. And counts us as righteous because our Savior, who is also a man, lived out a righteousness for us. As a man, Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners in order to atone for our sins. As a man, he died taking that penalty upon himself. So that if you trust in him, you are acquitted. You are forgiven. You are made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a man, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of his heavenly Father, and there he intercedes for his people as their brother. He's our substitute, so that if we come to him, if we turn from our sins and we put our trust in him, he saves us. He will take us to be with him when we die. He's our representative as our fellow man. So stop trying to earn your way to heaven because you cannot save yourself. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All your righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's eyes. And stop looking to anyone or anything else to make you right with God because they cannot. Jesus alone can And Jesus invites you to receive him, him, as a free gift and as your only Savior and Lord. And all you need to do to lay hold of him as your all-sufficient Savior and Lord is put your faith in him, him as the only one, the only one who is worthy to own you, to rule you, to save you, and to satisfy you forever. And if you trust in him, he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this truth, Lord. It, it's a very deep and high truth. Lord, we, we will spend the rest of our lives uh, plumbing its depths and never come, to the, never come to the place where we can fully wrap our arms and our minds around it. We will spend eternity praising you for this, for who you are, for what you've done. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God, mighty to save us, to save all who would come to you in repentant faith. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are man, that you identified with us, that you are our righteous representative so that if we belong to you, your righteousness is credited to our account. And we thank you for being our faithful brother who prays for us, ensuring that we will endure in our faith, the faith that you have given to us as our forerunner. Lord, help us to love you more, we pray, as a result of today. In Jesus' name, amen.